Thanks, Mike, and, and welcome, Congressman slash Dr. Rowe, one of 17 physicians in Congress, three in the Senate, 14 in the House. We've had former Secretary of Treasury Larry Summers and Harvard professor. We've had ex-CBO Director Doug Holzeekin, members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats, and Republicans and Democrats of all persuasions, CEOs of companies and associations representing the breadth of the country. But you, Congressman Rowe, provide a unique perspective on the COVID pandemic and economy. As usual, may I take a moment to thank all those Americans who selflessly are taking care of their neighbors and strangers, often at great risk to themselves. And I also want to applaud Dr. Rowe as the ranking member of the Veterans Committee for recently thanking all the veterans employees who remain committed to caring for our nation's veterans. Congressman Rowe was chairman of the Veterans Committee in the 115th Congress. He serves on the Education Labor Committee. He's co-chair of the GOP Doctors Caucus. And this is very important for any of you expecting a baby or a grandson or granddaughter you're out of luck. In his 31 years of medical practice, he, he delivered close to 5,000 babies, but I think he's done for the time being. Dr. Rowe, are you ready? Should we I'm go ready. for it? Ready, Mark. Okay. The New York Times finally got it right. The best comment on the COVID pandemic. I quote, this is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. We both hold hands and jump together. The newspaper elaborated, Dr. Rowe, the chairman of the GOP Doctors Caucus, agrees this is no time for politics. I spent a career in a lifetime taking care of patients, he said. This ought to be all hands on the deck. Dr. Rowe, is it? If not, why not? And what can we do about it? Well, unfortunately, Mark, we're still in a political environment, as you know, and people use uh, things as a uh, political advantage, I think, sometimes. We really should be thinking about our country and what we can do to help get through this. And, look, I live in a, in a very rural part of the country, um, northeast Tennessee, which is rural Appalachia. Uh, and, you know, I've seen my neighbors struggle, but I've also seen some incredible things that they've done for each other. It's really amazing how people have lifted each other up, whether it's the churches. And each week I hold a, um, a conference call with all my pastors. And, and before the governor or anyone actually put a stay at home policy, we, we, I recommended to the pastors, the biggest crowds we have on the weekends here when the University of Tennessee is not playing football are our churches. And so I said, I think it would really be smart on your part if you would, uh, if you would really hold those on the web, radio, uh, and they did. And I really think it helped our area. Uh, one of the ways you can chip in, I, I jumped in this and I remember, Mark, um, our first briefing we had in Congress, a bipartisan briefing, was the 29th of January. Within a week of that, I'd gotten a call uh, from uh, a text from a friend of mine's son, and his dad was on the Diamond Princess. And so I knew him. He's a fellow physician in a community near here. I've known him for 30 years. And I listened to that situation on there. And I pulled together the HHS, uh, DHS, Homeland State, uh, NIH, uh, and uh, Homeland Security, all those agencies together. And I said, look, if we leave those folks on that ship, we've got 400 Americans. I'm an old second infantry guy. 
um, served in the army. I said, we don't leave our people behind. Get the people off that ship or people are going to die. Within 48 hours, those folks were back in quarantine in the United States and we lost a big goose egg, not a single person. So that's how I got involved very early on with my experience. And, and I, I hope that what we do is think about what's best for all the country. And one of the things you're seeing, Mark, is we're very different. Uh, you look at what happened in New York, and I have many friends in New York City, physicians and other people that I contact with really almost daily and see how they're doing to keep up with them. classmates in medical school who practice there. And very different from where we are. We only have 300 cases, I think 40 active cases in all the first congressional districts. So we're very different than a very urban area like New York City. You and I believe in federalism, right? Absolutely. No doubt about it. That's now. May we talk about one of my favorite states? It's called the Volunteer State, which might be appropriate for today. Tennessee, of course, where you're from. Tennessee was one of the first states to reopen. Correct me if I'm wrong. April 27th, dine-in service in 89 of 95 counties, excluding the large urban areas, which you alluded to. Thereafter, rental shops and gyms. Later last week, retail stores and gyms. Music venues, indoor recreational businesses like bowling alleys, and I guess bars are also remain closed. Social gatherings larger than 10 off limits. Um, Tennessee opened up early. Um, can you, your thoughts on it as a physician, is there really a trade-off between uh, uh, saving lives and livelihood? But it, it's interesting because of your state's position. It is. And, you know, we we have a, a weekly conference call with the governor. And I've been, I looked at our hospital system here, Mark, and this is amazing to me. We have a, we have a, although the city I live in is the largest in my district, 65,000 people, we have a hospital system that has 15,000 employees. It's the fourth largest employer in the state of Tennessee. 2,087 beds we have. And my last check, we had 12 people in the hospital with COVID. We have 200 plus ventilators sitting there empty. We have only a 33% occupancy, 5,000 cases are waiting to be operated on elective cases. I have a friend of mine who's a neurosurgeon who has 85 nerve stimulators. These have already been tried, they work. These people are trying to get off narcotics. These are all backed up, patients who need uh, a, a diagnostics things. So I told the governor, I said, look, if we have testing, and by the way, in Tennessee, Anybody who wants to test can have one, period. We've tested over 200,000 people, and what we've noticed is the number of positives are going down, even though our testing has gone up, and the number of people going into the hospital has gone down. And we know by the natural history of this disease, if that's happening, then you're on the backside of the curve. And, and I think we are in Tennessee, and, and the people have been very, very good about following the governors. We said, look, we, there's nothing mandated. It's all voluntary. Nobody's arresting anybody. I, I talked to, I know all the sheriffs and police chiefs in my district, and they're not in that business to harass their neighbors for not wearing a mask, but they're really people being very good about it. And I feel, I think we're going to be fine. I want to say one other thing too that, that, that occurred to me during this. I was a freshman medical student in 1968 in Memphis. And I remembered the H3N2, the Hong Kong flu, uh, epidemic that occurred. That killed 100,000 Americans approximately when the population of the country was 200 million and we barely remember it. 
And I think, why, why was that? We didn't close businesses. We didn't close hospitals. I know I was in one training as a young medical student. Well, two things. One was the civil rights movement was, was going on and it occupied a lot of time. I was a, a mile away from where Martin Luther King was assassinated as a, as a freshman medical student. It was a scary time in Memphis, Tennessee. Secondly, it was the year of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. And that was the, all the headline stories. And basically, we got it all from newspapers or CBS, NBC, or ABC. That's how we got our news. We didn't have 24-hour cycles. I mean, I almost laughed the other day on the nightly news a couple of weeks ago here in Johnson City. We announced that one person somewhere had tested Corona positive. I thought, well, we'll be, we'll be uh, having bad colds will be announced on the TV. So I, I think we're doing well here. It is much different in the Northeast where they've been very, very hard hit. Are you open to immigrants? I mean, is there any way I can escape the swamp and come to the first? <laughs> they would love to have you. No, no state income tax. It's in our state constitution. One of the things that I might want to share with you, if it happens, I'm on the patient advisory board of MedStar in Washington, yeah. um, which will be a fascinating experience. But I've asked the, um, uh, the head of the hospital uh, to be a webinar. And, and obviously, I, I'd like to share um, this, this webinar uh, with you. Let's now switch, go sideways and, and switch to something else. You remember when we first met, it was during the debate of the fiduciary rule. Appropriately, now you're a senior member of the subcommittee Health, Employment, Labor, and Pensions. Your thoughts on the impact of the COVID economy on retirement security, student debt's a new one, and pensions. I know that's of interest to you. Well, the... Certainly the pensions are all starting to back and go, go the other direction, Mark. Pen, uh, we started our practice in 1977, and uh, we had 12 employees at that time, four physicians. We've grown that practice now to uh, over 200 providers and 850 employees. So we have a fairly good-sized private practice, not owned by anybody. We're all still in, in uh, independent practice. And we provided since day one retirement. I have said we still have one one employee was one of those twelve was with us in 1977. Still comes to work every day. Forty three years later, and she has a very robust retirement plan. Let me tell you. So um, I, I've looked at it. I didn't want people working for me for thirty years and then have only Social Security to live on. So it, to me. I invested in my employees because I knew I got to keep them. And the worst day of your life, if you're a doctor, is when you come in and you're a nurse who assists you, says, I'm going to leave. That means you got to train somebody new and it slows you up and it just makes life awful. So we, we really took good, tried to take good care of our folks and made sure that they could have a comfortable retirement. That's how important it is. Student loan debt is mind boggling. I was looking at uh, when, when I was in school, my dad worked in a factory. Uh, making shoe heels for for shoe for BF Goodrich Company. My mother was a bank teller. I stayed home and went to college, worked my way through college there. But I went to medical school with that background and graduated with zero debt, none. And today, these kids, and I taught in medical school here, the average debt at a state school here locally in Johnson City is about 190000 If you're at a private school, it's north of three hundred. I met a couple. I went hiking with a young doctor the other day a husband and wife team, over a half a million between the two of them. And, and they can't, I mean, they, they can't buy homes and, and uh, qualify for loans because of their student loan debt. 
what we did with this uh, particular, and we've got to deal with that as a country. Um, one of the things that we did was delay the payment of interest while this coronavirus pandemic was going on. I think that was a very good thing for people because two months ago, this is amazing to me. Two months ago, I'd go around my district, which I do frequently. The most common thing I heard was, Doc, we can't find enough workers. We can't find people to work. And literally, Mark, overnight, 30 million people are unemployed. That is a mind-numbing number of people unemployed. And, and Tennessee, for instance, I'll just give you our statistic, it was 2,000 people a week applied for unemployment in the entire state. And literally in one week, 100,000. Well, they were just overwhelmed and almost couldn't, uh, couldn't do that. The other part about the first part of your question, um, one of the things I thought was very important, Austin Scott deserves a shout out for this, congressman from Georgia. Um, and he probably heard from his dad, who's a retired uh, surgeon. <laughs> But what a terrible time to have a required minimum distribution when the stock market goes down 40% or whatever it did, close to it. And so we put in the bill in the CARES Act that you did not, if you didn't need to, you didn't have to have a required minimum distribution this year. So forcing you to take out money when your pie had shrunk and making it even smaller when it comes back, you'll be less well off. So for those who can afford to have some savings and want to live on that, they'll be able to do that. Well, thank you. And we've got a question from Melanie Waddell, who's with a newsletter dealing with pensions. And her question is a little bit complicated for me, but I'm sure you'll understand it. The DOL fiduciary rule reboot that is to align with the SEC's Reg B1 is said to be on the back burner. How do you feel about that? Should labor issue a rule before Reg B1 becomes effective on June 30th or issue a second fiduciary rule at all? Does that yeah, I think... I, yeah, I think I would wait. I agree with her on that. I think I would wait. And certainly during, I think the less rulings that can be rendered during a pandemic when people are just trying to keep their head above water, I think you can delay any of those would be a good idea right now until people get through this pandemic. The um, I went on your website and obviously see all the activity that you're engaged in uh, for veterans. But the question is, you were chairman of the Veterans Committee in the 115th. You're now the ranking member. Could you tell us a little bit about the impact of the COVID pandemic on veterans? What's been done? What still needs to be done? You know, it was, uh, I'll give the VA a shout out. They began to prepare. Uh, and we have a conference call with uh, Secretary Wilkie and Dr. Stone, who's under Secretary of Health every week, just got off of it uh, yesterday. A one hour conference call each week about where the VA is. And again, the VA pretty much mirrors the, uh, the country that most people don't know, but the VA has three missions and then they have a fourth mission that's not known. They're obviously cemeteries, disability benefits and healthcare. But the other is to provide resources when the country has one, whether it's a hurricane, tornadoes, floods, whatever it may be in this, in this case, a pandemic, um, they open up the VA for other, uh, other patients and they did in New York. Right now, which I think is one of the best things that Mark they've done, is they've gone into, I think, 38 different state uh, veterans homes, state nursing homes, because of the, the tragedy that occurred in Massachusetts. 70 veterans died of COVID-related illness. And we know that one of the hardest hit populations is that population in an assisted living or long-term care facility or, or a nursing home. So they've gone in with resources and helped. 
and they also provided uh, medical resources, PPEs for others. We, we have, again, at our local VA medical center here, uh, a large medical center where 33% occupancy, just like the private hospital is. They have a grand total of zero patients in the hospital with COVID, 15 COVID patients, and yet we're waiting to do elective surgeries and all that. So this, uh, this Friday, the VA is going to announce um, new guidelines about when we can open up. It's done a couple of things. It's slowed up the, uh, the uh, insertion of the new electronic health record. One of the reasons I ran for another term in Congress was to help get that out. That's some pretty in the weed stuff, but it's probably one of the most important uh, things the VA will do. Uh, I'm thinking about 50 years from now, Mark, we'll be able to go back when this record is there. A young recruit comes in uh, at 18, 20 years old, and now they're 70 we'll be able to go back and, and have a treasure trove of information. For instance, like we tried to do on the Blue Water Navy or on uh, the Agent Orange or burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan. We will know, we can look at those populations and find out exactly what's wrong. So I think the VA has done a good job. They're, they're uh, beefing up their PPEs. They certainly are keeping us informed. And, and I'll pass along little things that can we did that, that don't get any notice. But, but nip some things. When colleges, remember, uh, literally in the middle of March or early April, had to stop and go online. They had to, had to stop their uh, classes. Well, if you're getting the GI Bill, which is a great benefit for veterans, if you're at a bricks and mortar, your uh, per diem, how much money you get paid for your living allowance, is a lot different. It's about twice as much as it is if you take an online class. So all of a sudden, all the folks, students are on, online. Does that mean that their benefits are cut in half? Well, within one day, I had a bill out to correct that. The president's already signed it into law, so veterans don't have to worry about that. Uh, and across our entire state, we've been very, very fortunate. I think we've only had four veteran fatalities due to COVID in the entire state. Well, thank you. Um, earlier, we talked about the immediate challenges for healthcare resulting from the COVID pandemic. You've seen it all. Hillary care when you were in private practice, Obamacare when you were in Congress. The GOP doctors caucus that you co-chair are 16 medical providers in Congress who utilize their needed expertise to develop patient-centered health care. Given your experience and what you're doing now, and given the extreme partisanship about healthcare, what should be done about healthcare, and more importantly, what can be done? Senator Ben Cardin once taught me that um, bipartisanship or nonpartisanship is good because it'll last, and also you might get the best idea. So that's why I say what's doable in addition to what should be done. You know, I think, um, Mark, one of the things that is doable is, and one of the things that's frustrated me forever in healthcare, um, is transparency. You, the only place in the world I know of, you go and spend tons of money and have no earthly idea what it costs or what you're purchasing is to a hospital or to the doctor's office. So it should be transparent. I mean, you go down to buy a suit of clothes or sweater, you know exactly what it's going to cost you. You know what the tax is. You know what all that is. You go in the hospital when you're ill and you're the least prepared to do those things. You have no clue. So I think transparency is one of the most important things. Tomorrow, I'm going to get this MRI on my shoulder. 
I have a health savings account. I have Obamacare. I have a very large out-of-pocket. I'm not going to go down there and say, charge me the most you can. I'm going to say, I'm going to pay you cash with this debit card. And in a millisecond, you'll have your money. I want your best price. And people say all the time that Americans aren't good shoppers. They can't shop for health. Hey, we're a country that'll drive across five lanes of interstate to get gas two cents a gallon cheaper. So the best shoppers in the world are Americans and they will do it for healthcare. I absolutely believe this, that there is enough money in the American system right now, not to invest any more money to cover every person in the United States. And just to give you a, a local flavor of our, and, and again, areas are different. Our payer mix at our hospital, again, um, 2000, over 2000 beds, 21 hospitals, or 60% Medicare, 15% Medicaid, we're a non-expansion state, 15% Medicaid, only 17% private insurance, and about 8% uninsured. And I want you to listen to this statistic. This is amazing, because I just talked to the hospital administrator the other day. The largest uncollectible debt the hospital deals with are people with insurance. Let me say that again. The largest uncollectible debt when I first heard that, I said, that makes no sense. It actually does. To make these plans affordable, according to the uh, ACA, the Obamacare, then the out-of-pockets went up and up and up. And in an area like us, if you make thirty-five dollars or $40,000 a year and your out-of-pocket is $5,000, you can't pay it. I mean, you just don't have the money to pay it. So those are just a few things I would do to transparency. Certainly, I would... Uh, put patients more in charge instead of insurance companies and so forth. And I think we can do this. I, I really believe it. And by the way, working together, an unlikely duo is Donna Shalala and Phil Rowe. We work very closely together and she's been a great partner. She was there during the, uh, during the Hillary care years. And we're working very closely together with uh, Dr. Schreier from Washington state and Tom Morelli from New York uh, on surprise medical billing. I know that'll come as a surprise to a lot of people. We're going we're gonna to get that problem worked out in a bipartisan way, and it will last a long time, and it will be a better bill because it's bipartisan. Well, that's, she's, she's a remarkable person in terms of what she's done, and, of course, you're remarkable with that, that background. Now let's have a little fun. 5,000 babies, a successful practice, medical practice for 31 years, now elected to Congress in 2008. Which is a better life? And more importantly, what lessons have you learned for the practice of medicine? What for the practice of being a member of Congress? Well, you know, the, they're both very different. And um, I, I served my country in the military years ago and back in the early, uh, and, and I volunteered. My first political job, Mark, was a planning commission. Let me make a recommendation to all people watching this webinar. Never volunteer for a school board or a planning commission. Don't don't do that. Save yourself. Or or and and I say this, the hardest political job I ever had was the president of the Town Acres Elementary School PTA. That was the toughest one. That's much harder than being in Congress. That the the, the parents would wear you out when the kid left the coat or whatever, or they or they didn't get to play on the soccer game. But I you know I think the smartest day I ever was in the practice of medicine was the day I graduated from medical school. And I got dumber every year after that. I figured out I didn't know everything. And so practicing medicine is very humbling. Um, you know, you have people, your neighbors, your friends, 
your the families of your kids that grew up in the community. You deliver these kids. You get to watch them grow up and have their own families. And they would come to you, and and some many times you were their last hope because they had a malignancy or a cancer that you were going to operate on and take care of. So that was very humbling to me. That was much harder than any decision I've made in Congress. A lot of things I do in Congress are very annoying but they're not life-threatening. And it was almost a day didn't go by in my medical practice that I didn't make a decision that affected somebody's life. And you see these folks out there today uh, walking in with a gown and a mask and maybe not all the stuff they need to take care of their neighbors and their friends and people they don't even know. So I have incredible respect for what, and oh, today is uh, National Nurses Day, I think. So a big shout out to uh, our nurses out there again, they always made me look good, and I appreciated that. But I've also appreciated the privilege and honor of serving in the U.S. Congress. I've made and the thing I'm going to miss when I leave at the end of this year are the friendships I've made. And I've really made some very dear lifetime friends, and they visited me here socially in my uh, district, and I visited their homes and, and their districts when I go around the country. And you really meet some remarkable people. It, it's not the caricature and some very bright people, I might add. Um, who challenge you every day. So they're very different. But uh, I ran a small business. We, uh, you know, ran a business. Now it's a fairly good sized business. We're one of the largest employers in our city. So I got a chance to do that, serve on local city council. All of these things have been very helpful in helping me and uh, be, I hope, a better congressman. And, and I think the thing that I've learned the most from the practice of medicine that's helped me in Congress is to listen. You learn a lot by listening to people and listening, sharing their thoughts, and uh, then taking what they think and putting them with your ideas. And sometimes you come up with some really good good ideas and, and bills by doing that. Congressman Rowe, you might might get a kick out of this. You were been so generous with, with your time to come to our Washington salon. Um, many, many years ago, uh, Ben Bernanke was at one, and Tom Foley was there. And uh, Tom Foley said, I, at that time, Ben was the sec- chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. And he said, is, is that Ben Bernanke? And I said, yes. And, and I said, Mr. Chairman, um, you should also know that, that he's um, a better politician than you are. And he said, why? And I said, he got elected to the school board. <laughs> he might not be the smartest one, I'll tell you. That's a tough job. But it's, it, it's what, you, what you were talking about. So thank you, Congressman Rowe, for your service to our country as a physician as a member of Congress, and since you mentioned you're retiring, who knows what next. Thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. Please don't forget Congressman Kevin Brady will be with us on Tuesday, May 12th, which is great because we can talk about, you know, your mention of the CARES Act. Uh, Then we've got the uh, president CEO of the National Rural Electric Co-op Association who are suffering and more to come. Please encourage your friends and colleagues to do likewise. And of course, suggestions for you, future webinar guests would be more than welcome. Congressman Rowe, any final comments? No, it's been, uh, thanks for having me on, Mark. I really have enjoyed coming to the salon. You have some great people there. I mean, I sit around, I feel feel very inadequate in a room full of really smart people. So you always put a great uh, event together, and I hope we're able to do it soon. I'm really getting tired of sitting in my house and my living room. I know we're all watching it's death by conference call and you're on six hours a day. Uh, I just got off a whip meeting call. I'm on the whip team and I'm ready to get.